Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Here's San Francisco and the incomparable forward, Rick Barry. Behind the end line, they burn him again, and it's Barry. And now Rick Barry, the league's leading scorer. What a superb basketball player he is. Hi, everybody. Rick Barry here along with my cohort in crime, Cyrus Satchis, the surf man himself, who just had my son Canyon on his surf show, which we'll talk about a little bit. But we'll do that a little bit later because we're very happy to have someone that I've known for more years than both of us probably want to admit that we know each other. Uh, someone who uh, had an illustrious career as a, as a coach in the NBA. But he also, I don't know how many people know, he was a hell of a basketball player at the University of North Carolina. Under Dean Smith, he was a two-time second-team All-ACC. And then in his last year there, he was the first-team first, uh, first team All-ACC guard and played some years uh, in the NBA and the ABA as far as basketball goes. And then he, uh, then he wound up going into the coaching ranks for many, many, many years. And, of course, I'm talking about no one else other than George Carl. George, welcome to the show. Rick, good to be with you. Let's have some fun. It's fun to have basketball back. Cyrus seems like he's got it under control, so we're, I think we can do okay. <laughs> yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. I, I, so let, I, let's get back a little bit. I said, there's a lot of things here that, you know, looking up and reading up about you that you've had a lot of things take place in your life, as everybody does. But I'm really kind of curious about uh, your, your fondest memories back in your days uh, under Dean Smith at UNC. Well, I mean, uh, I think my fondest memory was uh, – uh, you know, we went to the Final Four uh, my junior year. I th that's when I think there were – well, I don't know why, but I think 17 teams went to the NCAAs. Um, and we went to the Final Four. We won I played really well in the Eastern Conference um, playoffs. Um, but my fondest memory was uh, my sophomore year, we had the same lineup from the year before except for Charlie Scott. I replaced Charlie Scott in the lineup at Carolina, and uh, Charlie, I think his his last year didn't didn't they didn't do very well. They had like a 19 win season, and that year we actually won 26 or 27 games, went to the NIT, and won the NIT in New York City, and that was probably the most fun I had in New York City, winning the NIT at that time. It wasn't as it wasn't as downtrodden as it is now, uh, but we beat every team in the NIT that year. I think we won four games by by 20 points or more, and we beat good. We beat Julius Irving. Uh, we beat uh, um, uh, Ernie Diagorio at Providence, and then we beat Duke in the semifinals and Georgia Tech in the finals, and we beat them all by over 20 points. So it was really a lot of fun to play with, a, you know, your first year in the league in, in major college basketball. Uh, I had a lot of fun. And, yeah. and Coach Smith is a great teacher of, of men. Uh, you know, I, I say all the time he's a great coach, but he's better, probably a better teacher of friendship and loyalty and connection than anybody I've had in my life. 
Well, that's uh, quite a compliment to, to Dean Smith, and I've heard that from a lot of guys who played for him. Uh, just a terrific man. I had the pleasure of getting to meet him and be around him on several occasions. But I think the thing that people have to understand and realize is that back in those days, and even more so when I played in the NIT, the NIT was a bigger tournament than the NCAA back in those days. And back when you played, like you say, the NCAA didn't have that many teams, and it was still a big deal to go to the NIT tournament. A lot of schools chose to go there instead of going to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that happened right around the, it started turning right after about, I graduated in 73 and about probably 75, 76. And of course, then when Bird and Magic hit the, hit the pavement in 80, uh, that, that's kind of when the NCAA grew in popularity. And now it's an amazing billion dollar event that uh, we missed. We missed yeah. this year. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's for sure. And so did the NCAA because they lost them billions of dollars. So it's, yep. they're very dis, uh, little de depressed about that. And, and Cyrus, I'm not going to try to dominate here, but, but uh, Do I've known George dominate. well. Dominate. And, and, no, well, because here's the thing is that he has a distinction that I didn't have. He actually got drafted by the Knicks, and those SOBs didn't draft me when I came out of college, and I wanted to be drafted by the Knicks. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about that experience and what you wound up doing. Well, you know, I was drafted. I don't know. I, I don't know what number it was. It was in the fourth round. So that might have been like 40. You know, there weren't that many teams in the league at the time. Um, yeah, it would have been like and, a second round draft pick today. Right. And I had the privilege of I went to New York and I met with Red Holtzman um, and met with, you know, he was it was a fantastic interview. I, I felt I felt wanted. Uh, but they also drafted in the first round of that draft, Ali McGuire from Marquette. And so my, at that time, my agent was Donald Dell. And he just said, I don't know how much chance you have of making the roster. They're probably going to send you to, at that time, it was called the Eastern League. And that was probably where I was going to play, which it later became the CBA. Uh, and Donald Dell, out of nowhere, went to San Antonio Actually, he was trying to sell Kermit Washington to San Antonio, and Kermit decided, I think, to sign with the Lakers. And on the side bet, he talked to Angela Drosos into signing me to a three-year guaranteed contract. So I, I went down there. Uh, I was lost for the – I mean, my first – I don't think I made a jump shot for like 10 days in, in practice. I was scared to death, nervous. Nervous as hell. Tom Nasalki was my coach. He didn't like me very much because I liked to run up and down. He liked to hold the ball and pass the ball 10 times before it mattered. Uh, but it worked out. It worked out great. Nasalki actually came around, and I started at the end of my, my rookie year. I started a lot of games and, and learned a lot about pro basketball. Next year, Bob Bass took over in San Antonio, and I don't know how much you know Bob Bass, but I think Bob is one of the lifetime basketball coaches. Uh, I mean, he was an ABA guy more than an NBA guy, but I thought he was a big mentor to me. And then a couple of years later, they, they uh, hired Doug Moe. And of course, Doug and I were close, good friends at North Carolina. And I got to play, a, I, I tore my knee up just before the NBA season. So I never had much in the NBA, but I had some good games in the ABA. Cyrus? Well, well, you know, following up on that, I guess I'm, I'm curious to ask first and foremost, uh, every 
I, I feel like from my perspective, you are the coach. I mean, my entire adult life, you've always been coaching NBA teams. Um, it wasn't until later I even realized you were a player at one point. You're a great player at that. What do you attribute to your success as a coach? I don't think you've ever had a stop anywhere where you failed. I don't think you ever had a stop anywhere where you, where your teams had losing records, maybe here and there. I need to go back and look at your bio. But generally speaking, you've been wildly successful as a head coach. You're one of okay. the all-time leaders in wins. What do you attribute to that? Was it Dean okay. Smith? I'm going to, I'm going to actually, yeah. So here's the thing I want to do. I got to interrupt here because okay. I, that's a great question, but I want my question to him is when did you decide that coaching would be something you wanted to do? And then you can answer his question. Uh, you know, I think it was probably, it started myself, my freshman year in college, I, I had back surgery. And so I only played six games and, and I, I mean, it was like a six month, I don't know if it's six months, but it seemed like a long time. I couldn't play basketball back then. They didn't take a chance on backs. Um, I still think back surgery is really a difficult surgery even today, but back then it was considered like, you know, it, it was considered career ending. Uh, but I, what I did is I used, I went to the basketball practices and then I started watching film with coach Guthridge and coach uh, lots and, sometimes coach Smith. And I kind of figured out that there was a lot, lot to coaching. And I think that was the first time I thought about it. Uh, in high school, I scored a lot of points and going to Carolina, they asked me to play point guard. And that was an experience too, because being told not to shoot and when to shoot and what you wanted and the, and the it, was, it was just the mental aspect of the game. I didn't know anything about before I got to college. So that started. Uh, then uh, my second year out of pro basketball in the ABA, I was playing pretty good. And Larry Brown and Doug Moe had a USA team that went to Russia. And they asked me to go along as, as an assistant coach. They really asked me to go along to be an extra player to practice, to be honest <laughs> with you. I was a throw in on them to deal. I didn't do much coaching, but you know, Larry, Larry Brown, I think, I think, I don't know. Larry's a really an eclectic guy, a centric guy, but he is a hell of a basketball coach. Mm -hmm. And he's a little bit of an encyclopedia of basketball. And I was with them for like 30 days in the summer of my second year out. And that's probably where I said to myself, I got to try this. I got to try to do this. Was that a, then from that point on, was that when Doug gave you an opportunity to be a Spurs assistant coach? Is that your first job? Uh, my first job in the league, I, I played, I sat on the bench. My knees were torn up. I played, I think, like 12 games in the NBA. Uh, but that was two years with Doug. And then, uh, then I, at the end of that second year, I sat, I sat on the bench for the playoffs. And I, I'll tell you one funny story. Uh, sitting on the bench, my first game sitting on the bench was an NBA playoff game against the Washington Bullets in the Eastern Conference Championship. And I'm the scout, right? And so I'm yelling all this stuff out there, and, you know, pick and roll, we're in our five, you know, whatever concepts. Daryl Garrison was refereeing the game. And he blew the whistle. This is like in the first quarter. He said, he blew the whistle, and he walked over to me and stuck his finger in my face. He said, they didn't make you a fucking assistant coach to yell at the fucking referees. So shut the fuck up. And my armpit sweated 
almost knocked my waist immediately. I mean, I was scared to death. I didn't say a word the rest of the way. Uh, I always remember that moment. <laughs> well, from, from there he went on. I mean, didn't you go after as an assistant with the Spurs? I was that I think it was back in '78 when you had that chance. Then you had your first chance to be a head coach, right, in the minor leagues, right? You went to and to Montana, right, the Golden Nuggets. Golden uh, the Mon Montana Golden Nuggets. <laughs> uh, what's funny is Doug is the guy. I remember. I don't know if when when, when Doug got fired, I got fired. And I think I met with Doug, and he basically told me, he said, George, you're not an assistant coach. You want to pull the trigger. You want to make the decisions. And he said, you should be a head coach, and you should go practice it. You're just not made out to be an assistant. And that's when I got – actually got two offers in about the same way week. I got Billings Volcanoes or the Montana Golden Nuggets. I chose Great Falls over Billings. <laughs> that's not yeah, a great that's, choice that's a hell of a choice <laughs> <laughs> one's colder than the other i know <laughs> the wind blows a hell of a lot more in, in great falls but i went up there and uh, had a lot of success had a lot of good players um I, I i befriended a high school coach in town there named gene esplin and even though no one knows gene esplin he was really good for me he really grounded me. I was a little egotistical, a little wild and crazy with my mouth too much. And uh, he had the balls to, you know, after a game, take me over and, and drink a beer and, and kind of tell me the truth. And I think in today's game, you know, my podcast is called Truth in Basketball because I don't think a lot of people tell the truth. And, Rick, I think you connect with that a little bit also. <laughs> yeah, and it, get, it gets you in big trouble because people really don't want to hear. I feel like Jack Nicholson all the time. In fact, we have a little segment on this show. It says, you know, we play the, the sound bite that we use uh, and of the from the movie A Few Good Men when he says, you know, you can't handle the truth to Tom Cruise when he's on the on the uh, right. witness. And so I, 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 I know I know what that's like. People really they ask you questions. And if you don't give them the answer that they want, you tell the truth. They get mad at you. I, I agree with you hundred percent. I mean, my, my whole feeling in today's game is it's become a perception game, a spin game, a PR game. And I, I still don't understand why people don't trust the truth. Because I think when you tell the players the truth, they might get pissed at you, but if they know it's the truth, it makes them better faster, in my opinion. Well, I agree um, with you. That's one of the things I always said about coaching and my, you know, limited experience that I had doing it is that I always told the guys, I said, look, guys, I'm never going to BS you, okay? And I'm never going to try to embarrass you, but, you know, you have to say, return the favor to me. You know, don't BS me and don't ever embarrass me because we're in this together. And I think yeah, you, you got to earn their respect. And respect's got to be both ways. And, um, mm -hmm. The power and influence of the game in the last, I think, five or ten years has drifted to the player. And the coach is losing, I don't know, losing its territory of influence. And uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I think the game is still evolving in a good way, in a positive way. But I, 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 don't, I don't understand where the game is going if the coach is going to become somewhat robotic and controlled <laughs> by management. Uh, I still think coaching a game, you know, I was once asked the question, 
how important is a head coach in the NBA? Rick, you might, I don't know. My, my feeling is he's as important as a, a, a really good bench player or maybe a little bit more. And I think coaching when, helps you win championships. The guy that leads you through a season and then into the hell, the hell of NBA playoffs, he's got he's to he's have a lot of hats and he's got to push a lot of buttons. He's got to be right more often than he's wrong. I would totally agree with you on that aspect of it. I mean, and the thing is, is you, you have to say, earn the respect of the players so that they will actually listen to you and attempt to do the things that you want them to do. And here's what I've always said when I, when I was doing all the broadcasting work and they go out there and say, oh, well, that was a terrible play. I said, wait a second. Unless you're in the huddle and you can hear exactly what the coach said, you don't know whether the players went out there and did what the coach asked them to do or not. And many times that's what happens. They – they cross that black line and it's like walking into the twilight zone. They forget exactly what the hell was said on the bench and they go out there and they do something stupid. And then you look <laughs> foolish because the announcers are saying, boy, that was a terrible play they ran. In my younger days, I, I, I really got into whatever it's called, the ego of calling plays out of timeouts and being really good at the end of games. And at the end of my career, I used to say to a lot of coaches, that I want you to know, I've drawn up some really good plays at the end of games. I've drawn up some really bad plays at the end of games. And I've been really lucky at the end of a lot of games. <laughs> and, it's, and it's probably a third, a third, a third. You know, I, I, I think it's a little overrated that we think coaching is all about the end of the games. I think the 47 minutes before – the end of games, I don't think that gets a lot of love. And I, and fortunately, I've coached a lot of good teams. And I have been out-coached for 45 minutes a lot of nights. And just because my team was more talented and more confident, we could figure out how to win a game. But for 44, 45 minutes, the guy next to me was doing a better job than me, but I had better players. And I, I learned that over years of coaching, you know, and unfortunately I got, I got to coach good players and good teams. In your opinion, George, yeah, well, what I always is, said that I think, oh, sorry. well, I'm go sorry, ahead, sorry. Go I just real quick and you can go on. No, no, just keep your same question. I was just going to say, I've always said that it, I think coaches get too much credit at a lot of times and most of the time they get too much blame. Right. <laughs> I agree. That, I, I agree that there's a imbalance, um, you know, some of the greatest coaches in my career mentoring me have never won championships. Some of them were Division three schools. Uh, Rick Majerus never won a championship, had tremendous influence on me. Hmm. Uh, you know, a, a guy recently when, when we changed up here in Seattle, I mean, in Denver, it was Vance Wahlberg who was a high school coach that had tremendous influence on what I was trying to do in the NBA. So I'm... I'm I'm coached in Europe. There are a lot of good coaches in Europe. Uh, but they're crazier in Europe than they are in America. They fire coaches really quick over there. Oh, huh. yeah. I, I've, I've seen that because my sons have played over there doing stuff. It's it's, it's kind of crazy. It's really crazy over there. Yeah, it's yeah. really crazy. And soccer is worse. Yeah, Cyrus, <laughs> you have your question. Go ahead. Oh, it was just a really simple question. It might be obvious. But of all these teams you've coached and you've coached some great ones, which team over a year would you consider the greatest? Oh, well, I, I, I don't think there's any question. Our time, my time in Seattle 
Was That's why you got the hat there. on. You got the Seattle yes. Sonics hat on. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to get a, a team back there so I can have a, a job until I'm 80, maybe or something. Yeah. <laughs> As a consultant or something, you know. Uh, but uh, I think the year we went to the NBA Finals, and I know no one's going to believe me, but I really believe if we had Nate McMillan healthy, mm. we would have given the Bulls a hell of a fight. I think we took it to six. In that six-game series, Nate played, I think, three games. And in those three games, I think we won two of them. And then we lost, uh, I think, the last one, game six. And uh, Nate, I mean, Gary and Sean were kind of the, the heart of our team, the talent of our team. But Nate was the kind of the glue guy, the, the soul of our team, the kind of the leader of our team. And uh, I'm happy for Nate right now. I think he's doing a hell of a job coaching in Indiana right now. I'd agree. Yeah. Underrated player and coach. And I, and I guess if you don't mind, Rick, a, a follow-up question to that. Uh, I mean, the, the, the program that carried so many sports fans through the summer was The Last Dance, right? I mean, that amazing documentary on the, and the Michael Jordan Bulls and, and Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson and all them. And, and you were featured in one of these episodes because of the, uh, the anecdote Jordan was sharing about running into you at a steakhouse in Chicago and you basically ignored him. And I think a big theme was Jordan finding motivation for games, right? And he kind of took that as a, as a motivation to get at you. Could you share your side of that story? Like, 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 why did you ignore him if you did? And just, yeah, just divulge, please. Well, it's 25 years ago. My memory, <laughs> is, I mean, we talk about it like it's 25 minutes ago. And the truth of the matter is, I, my recollection is it was in Seattle and not Chicago. It was in game before game three, and we were down 0-2. And I had no desire to shake his hand or talk to him. <laughs> and, and then in the, in the North Carolina protocol, <laughs> is he came after me. He's supposed to come talk to me. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm supposed to go kiss his ring when I'm competing against him? <laughs> and what's funny about it is Michael and I have played golf a half a dozen times, maybe more, since that day. And he's never brought it up to me. <laughs> and I'm going to bring it up to him the next time I see him. I want you to know. Hey, and I agree with you. You know why? I mean, hey, come on. The guys over there kicking your butt. You're trying to win a championship. And so what are you supposed to go over there and, and be, you know, happy and, you know, hug him? And, hey, <laughs> hey the hell? You're probably hoping he gets food poisoning, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. I have no problem with that. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing comes down to is I had a couple guys on my team, Sam Perkins being one, Greg Anthony being another. I think we had like three guys that really were close to Michael. And I told them before the series started, no fraternization with Michael. <laughs> so, I mean, it was because we, we I don't know if you remember Brendan Malone, Mike Malone's dad. Right. He was Chuck Daly's coach, assistant coach. And we brought him into Seattle and stayed with us the whole playoffs. And he was advising us on how Michael plays head games with you. And so I went out of my way to make the statement to my team, no fraternization. And if I would have gone and kissed the ring and I got back to my players, my players would probably been pissed. <laughs> See, there we go. So folks, all of you people who are out there who saw the last dance, you have, there's always two sides 
to every story, folks. But since you brought this up, George, and you brought up your experience going over and coaching overseas, you were with Real Madrid, a famous, very famous sports club over overseas. Uh, and everybody's you know kind of heard of them, I think, if you follow sports, especially basketball. So uh, I think actually when you were over there with Real Madrid, you were going back and forth and you had great success with the Albany Patroons and the CBA. And I, I know you won some titles and you won some CBA Coach of the Year awards and all. But then with Real Madrid, I want to know what your experience is like there, because I think in your second time when you went back over in 91, 92, you actually won the FIBA Sporta Cup. Is that not correct? What was that experience like? Well, that's the year I got, I left. Uh, my first year was, was Real Madrid. And I want you to know, I love my experience in Real Madrid. I would go coach Real Madrid tomorrow. Probably not, wouldn't charge them anything. That's how much fun it was. I enjoy the European basketball because you play once or twice a week. You don't have these crazy five games in eight days. You have one, mostly one game, but now with the EuroLeague being very big, you have probably have two games a week. Great time to prepare. You have time for your family. You have time to kind of get involved with the, the culture of the country. And I had fun. But my first year, I had a disaster. One of the most memorial things, memory, memorable things in my life. Well, our best player at the time was a guy by the name of, Len, of Fernando Martin. He played for Portland. I think he might have been one of the first Europeans ever to try to make the NBA. He didn't have a career in the NBA. He went back to Real Madrid. Well, he was on that team, and I had Petrovic on that team. And about a month into the season, Petrovic leaves and goes to Portland in October. And then in December... Fernando Martin, Martin was killed in an automobile accident coming to a game. And that whole experience in my life, I think it kind of made me grow up because my ego was a little out of control. I thought I was probably better than I was. And from December, I think, 3rd, he died December 3rd. From that day till making it till the end of the season, we went to, we played in the European championship and lost that year to Gallo. Gallo played and Michael Ray Richardson and Gallo, Gallo's father was on that team coached by Messina. So we lost in the finals and, and, but we did it without Fernando and they fired me. And then that's when I went back to Albany and we had the, the great year of one going 50 and six in the, in the, in the CBA and Nelly Nelly calls me up and I went out and scouted and helped Nelly out in the playoffs. And that's when Real Madrid called back and said, come on back. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great soap opera, but I go back and I not not many people know the story, but on, on, on New Year's day, on New Year's day of that second time back in Madrid, I tell my family, I'm tired of pro ball. I'm done. I'm going, Rick Majerus had called me and he said he was about ready to take the Vegas job and he wanted me to come as his associate head coach. And that, that, I, I told my family at that time, that's what I want to do. About a week later, um, Jerry Krause calls me up and says, I'm coming to Madrid. Could you prepare some video and some information on Sabonis and Kukoc. And so I put together this pre 
presentation for Jerry Krause. It lasted about a half a day, maybe maybe a little longer. And and then a week after that, I get a phone call from Seattle, and they said, "Would you be interested in coming back as an assistant coach for Casey Jones?" And I thought about it, and I said, I, "My family decided let's do it." And at that time in Madrid, I was making two hundred and I think two hundred and fifty thousand dollars tax free. Ooh. And I was coming back to coaching assistant coach for a hundred thousand dollars tax. <laughs> but I didn't know Casey Jones. So I told Bob Woodson, I said, if, if Casey's okay with it, but he's going to call me and ask me and, and tell me it's okay. Casey rejected the offer. They lost six or more, six more games. What's it called back and said, would you come back as head coach? And I said, hell yeah. <laughs> and so for about a three week period, I thought I was going to Vegas and hang out with Majerus and get fatter. Or, <laughs> and then three weeks later, I'm coaching the NBA and had a great time. Yeah. But then you went on with that season. You went on and won the FIBA Sporta cup, right? Yeah. That team won the cup yeah. and we, we were good. I mean, they were good enough to win it. We knew it. Uh, they've given me recognition as, as being a co-head coach. Uh, Major Real Madrid's been good for me. I've gone back a couple times. I need to go back at least one more time and see some of the old guys. Yeah, great you know, experiences. Uh, great experiences. You know, my uh, – so I, as Rick knows, I'm a fanatical Warriors fan. and I go a little psychotic sometimes. And my, my earliest memory of just anything related to the NBA, I was in third grade playing CYO basketball. And after one of our games, I go home – and I watched this Warriors game that you're coaching. This was before your time with uh, Real Madrid. Uh, you were the head coach of the Warriors, among many other stints you've had. And I'm witnessing, to this day, arguably the greatest playoff performance, at least in a quarter, if not a half. I mean, Sleepy Floyd still owns those records incredibly uh, for most points scored in a quarter and a half, where the Warriors took the Lakers. It was, you, you didn't get swept. And in many ways, that was a victory because that Lakers team was a juggernaut. They, that was the only game they lost to the in the Western Conference playoffs, um, and it changed my life. I mean, I became a Warriors fan for life, and you were that head coach. And you took over a team that was downtrodden, and one year you turned them around, upset, I believe, the Jazz or the Spurs in the first round? I can't remember which one. I'm sorry. but uh, The Jazz. Yeah, it took them to the end. We were down 0-2. We were down 0-2 to the Jazz, yes. and a fight broke out after game two, and a fan came out of the crowd and hit me from behind. What? What? And Chris Mullen and Larry Smith chased down the fan. So it made the pep talk in the locker room after that game pretty easy. That's a story. <laughs> That's it's kind on of not It's on YouTube. Hey, it's it's the, no, it's the fans in Seattle because we were in a playoff game against Seattle in our championship year. We went up there and some lady, some guy threw a cup of water. And, you know, a beer, I think it was in my face as we're going through. Remember you went off in between those little boards and the ice rink was there and it was a little yeah. narrow thing. You went back to the locker room, George. And, yeah. and then, so the guy does it. And so I go home to grab him. Then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. And now, now I'm out there in the court. Some lady comes up behind and whacks me in the head with her purse. Oh. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> crazy. No, seriously. It was crazy. But I'll tell you what, that guy that threw the thing to Seattle, 
he was probably regretting that he did it. And the cops had him, you know, he was not oh. a happy camper. Yeah, no. And they said, do you want to press charges? He says, no, I don't want to press any charges. I'd rather just get the hell out of here. And so, but that, <laughs> it, it could be crazy up there in Seattle. The fans are very, uh, they're very rabid without question. And I, I hope you are successful, George, because I remember being up there the last year when they were playing there before they moved to Oklahoma City. And I know how disappointed everybody was when they lost mm. that team. Still am. Still are, yeah, still are. I'm I mean, so angry. I mean, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. How are souls? Yeah, Why but that was Oklahoma City. Yeah, David I, I, Stern. Why Oklahoma City? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, that, I, that's, I don't get it. Well, he I sold still it. Don't get it. Well, Howard didn't move the team. He sold it, and it was moved there. So it was Howard Schultz. Yeah, the Starbucks. Howard, people... Yeah, but Howard Schultz didn't move the team. It was the it was the the people right. from Oklahoma City who they bought it and they were moving it to, to Oklahoma City. Right, but I guess the criticism is a why sell it to to an individual who everyone knows wants to move the team to Oklahoma City, and b why sell it in the first place? Talk about one of the greatest regrets probably of that man's life. But going back to the Warriors real quick, most Warriors fans especially the younger ones, have no idea you coached this team and in your brief time there, you were successful. I mean, you started a nice run there that led to run TMC and those great late 80s, early 90s teams. What happened? Why did you leave? Like, I, you were there for such a brief stint. I've read some things. I love from your own words right now. Like, why Why did you leave this that, that the Golden State Warriors? Well, I, it's easy to remember. I mean, we uh, Nelly comes after the first year. Mm-hmm. And basically, I had a lot of power. Uh, I was hired by Jim Fitzgerald and Dan Finan, two guys that were big in Milwaukee. They heard that the Warriors were up for sale. They bought them, I think, for like, like $10 million, $12 million. Uh, 18. 18 million. I know exactly uh, what it was because I had somebody ask me who wanted to buy the team. I know it was $18 million that Finan <laughs> bought the team for. Yeah. Oh, and so... After year one, we had a good run where we beat, you know, we beat Utah in the first round and lose to Lakers. And Nellie orchestrates the trade for Joe Barry Carroll for Ralph, Ralph Sampson. And we trade Sleepy Floyd in it. Mm. So we have Joe Barry Carroll and Sleepy to get Ralph. And I think we found out very quickly that Ralph's knees don't work anymore. Uh. And... So that second year, we, we had a lot of injuries. Mullen went into rehab. He went into rehab uh, like early October. Larry Smith, who was kind of a glue guy on that team, tore his hamstring in training camp. And I think Terry Teagle got hurt too. And so three of our top, top players got hurt, got off to a bad start. Sampson was not, not a great player anymore. And it went down the shoe really quick. And I don't know this for truth. I think Dan Finan wanted Nelly to coach the team. Hmm. And Dan Finan, he was the guy living in San Francisco. Fitz was still living in Janesville and commuting to San Francisco. And, you know, uh, I, I just think they wanted Nelly to coach the team. I think they made it financially kind and generous for Nelly to coach the team. And, you know, Nelly and I were good friends. We still are today. But we did, we went a couple of years where it was like, what the hell is going on yeah. here? Yeah. But, you know, that's my recollection of it. Nelly has always been supportive of me. You know, some people think he stabbed me in the back. I just think it was just a situation that it fell apart. 
and Finan then gave, gave Finan an opening to convince Fitz and Nelly to coach the team. So d- did they fire you? I mean, how, how did it officially end? Yeah, he fired me. I'm out. I'm out. Okay. This is a good story that not many people know. They fired me in a hotel in San Francisco. I could probably find a hotel, but I don't remember the name. And so I go through like an hour and a half of kind of finan reading all these facts on why he fired me. You know, the legal stuff, the legal bullshit. <laughs> and uh, then I walk outside with Fitz. And Fitz and I have been pretty good friends. And Fitz puts his arm around me. And he says, George, he says, you know, you remind me a lot of Vince Lombardi. And I looked at him and I said, so you would fire Vince Lombardi? <laughs> and he says, and then he said to me, he said, yeah, but Vince Lombardi couldn't coach in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, just so people from a timeline understand that when he was the Warriors, that was before you went off. And then from there, you went on and then you did the Albany Patroons, the Real Madrid, and then Albany, Real Madrid again, and then the Sonics came. And then, ironically, you wind up going back to the team that Fitzgerald used to own. Back to the, yeah. the Milwaukee Bucks. That was great. You know, Rick Majerus got me that job. Rick Majerus and Herb Cole were really uh-huh. close. They knew each other really well from the Marquette days and Al McGuire. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, it was the lockout. The first lockout was the year that Herb called me in about September and said, I want you. Let's go. And uh, he, gave me, he gave me a hell of an offer, paid me a hell of a lot of money. Uh, and probably the most fun I've had in, in a city mm-hmm. with success was the year we went to the Eastern Conference Finals in Milwaukee and lost to Allen Iverson in Game 7 mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And, but that's, that, that run, we played a, a great we – uh, we beat Doc Rivers and I think – I don't think McGrady was playing. I think maybe McGrady was playing in the first round. The second round, we played Charlotte, and we're down 3-2. I'm sorry, down 3-1. No, 3-2. Yeah, 3-2 to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And we went down to Charlotte and won game six, came back to Milwaukee and won game seven. And then we played AI in Philadelphia and Larry Brown in a hell of a good series. Most lopsided free throw differential in the history of the NBA. And we didn't shoot more than they did. They shot more than we did. And we, we were a jump shot away from the NBA Finals. Oh. Yeah. And then just so people remember, Jason McGrady is that when he was with Orlando is when he was playing back right. in those days. Yeah. So that was, that was some, yeah. Well, that's some great stuff there. So I just wonder how many times you go to car rushes <laughs> in Milwaukee. I used to go there for a Tuesday. I was praying that whenever we had to go to Milwaukee, that it was always on Tuesday. No, it's a German restaurant. Carl yeah, Rosh's Tuesday, right Tuesday, Tuesday night boiled beef Bavarian special. One of the greatest meals oh. ever. I still remember that. I and think I festival. remember I would go there for the corned beef for some reason. Yeah. Sour, sauerkraut <laughs> and corned beef. Right. Yeah, with Rick Majerus, you went to all types of restaurants. I mean, Rick Majerus was such a good friend to me. And that, you know, I, 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 when I met Rick, I weighed about 240 pounds, maybe 235 pounds. After about five years with Rick, I ate 280 pounds. Oh. 
<laughs> I mean, Rick would go to dinner. I swear to God, this is a true story. Rick would go to dinner. He would order, if it's just he and I, he'd order four appetizers. Oh. Okay, so that's appetizers. Now, I could eat that. That's really good. And then we have a meal. And then he'd order two or three desserts. Oh. And I swear to God, at least five times in my life with Rick Majerus, after eating that type of meal, he would look me in the eye and say, you want to do it again? <laughs> and I said, you got to be kidding me. And that's how much the man loved eating. He loved telling stories over food. And uh, it's one of the blessings of my life to be a best friend with him. And he so loved hotels. I was, that always stuck out to me. Like, he, he lived in a hotel for most of his old life. Is that correct? I just didn't think he wanted to clean up a house. I mean, I, <laughs> I live by myself now. Yeah. And I, I wish I had a maid living with me. Again. Well, he's like another, another character that George and I both know really quite well is Chopper Travellini, the, the, the trainer for the Nuggets for many, many, many years, who was a trainer for me when I coached in the, in the, uh, in the ABA. And uh, and Tropper used to live in a hotel all the time too. He was quite quite the character. I mean, trouble me, folks. If you talk to guys around the NBA from back in those days, some of the stories are just unbelievable. So, what happens in Milwaukee that where that ends, and you wind up then for a year off, and you wind up with the with the Nuggets? How did that transpire? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I Senator Cole at the time was thinking about selling Milwaukee to Michael Jordan. And Michael was interested. And Michael and I had communications on should he do it. So I knew that Herb was trying to sell it. And Michael, I'll be honest with you, thought the deal was done. Michael, uh, Senator Cole backs out of the deal, pulls the plug on the deal. And in, in, in between it, I get in kind of a fight with Senator Cole over Ernie, uh, Ernie Grunfeld, who's our GM. All this is going around, and Ernie gets offered the Washington job, and Senator Cole wouldn't let him out of his contract. Uh -huh. And I went to Senator Cole. I said, you're, you're wrong, man. If you're going to sell the team, and Michael probably is not going to keep Ernie. He's going to bring his guys in. you got to let Ernie go. And he did. But I, that, that started a separation a little bit. Hmm. And about a month later, he decided to blow me up. Um, I, I don't know why exactly. You know, we didn't make the playoffs. The, the, the thing that blew, separated us more than anything is we went to the conference finals, and then the next year we didn't make it. Hmm. And it was a lot because we signed Anthony Mason. We thought Anthony Mason was the piece that was going to was going to take us over the hump. And Anthony Mason's, and, and, and God rest his soul, I mean, I don't want to jump on a kick a guy when he's, you know, but Anthony destroyed our chemistry. Mm. You know, and in a lot of ways, he was such a powerful personality. And uh, uh, we, we had a better team without him more than we had him with him. And so how did the Denver come along then? So after you were off, you were a year off, and uh, Denver comes after you. You know, Denver, I was on for a year, hang, I think hanging out in ESPN, doing some work there. Um, in the middle of the year, you know, I know, you know, Ms. Delic was, you know, they had a good year. They made the playoffs, Mello's first year. 
But they were having a bad year. They were, I don't know, six or seven games under 500. And um, Kiki knew of me. I knew Kiki a little bit. But the guy that made the deal was a guy, I don't know if people, I think, I don't know if you guys know a guy by the name of Brett Barab. Brett Barab's kind of an AAU guy, lawyer, financial guy. But he was really good friends with Stan Kroenke. And Stan, he talked Stan into hiring me, I think. And I think Kiki was with it too. And uh, they gave me a, a three-year plus three-year contract for six years. I made it almost nine years in Denver. And they had a really good team. I mean, their team was kind of built a little bit for my, the way I like to play. You had some defenders in Marcus Camby and Kenyon Martin. You had right. a good point guard in Andre Miller. And you had Mello. And uh, I came in here, and that year, the finish year, I came in mid-January, and we had 40 games left, and we went 32-8. and eight. And, and that just, that honeymoon, going 32-8, and eight, we played San Antonio in the first round. We beat them the first game. We got too cocky. They kicked our ass the rest of the way. Um <laughs> uh, but in my, I think, eight years here, I think we played the NBA champs in the first round four or five times. Played San Antonio a couple times. Played the Lakers a couple times. And, uh, and then the one year we went to the finals against the Lakers. The next year in 2009 was the year I got sick. And that was the best team I had. It was the best team we had. I, I was the coach of the all-star team, had the best record in February, and I came down with uh, squamous cell, head and neck cancer, had to go into radiation and chemotherapy, and I, I tried to coach, I don't know, but about mid-March, so I had to bail, I had to punt. That's what, that, what, was that, what was that experience, what was that like for you as far as your, your feeling towards life in general and everything? I'm sure, uh, hopefully most people will not have to go through, but unfortunately cancer is around and it's affected so many people's lives. So what was that experience like for you and what did you learn from it? Well, I think anytime you get told you have cancer, and uh, I mean, it's hard. It was my second cancer. I had prostate cancer in 2004. And then 2010, I come down with head and neck cancer. It made me grow up. I mean, it made, you know, I think coaching... I think most most coaches have an addiction to it. They love, they have a passion for it, and then they they're driven to win it. I mean, you know, being teased by having some success once you always drives you to want more. And I think most of my life I was driven by trying to win it, and uh, and I you know I I was naive you know trying to win it from a small market is hard. I was in Cleveland, Milwaukee. Golden State wasn't a small market, but Seattle, when I was in Seattle for seven years, sometimes we didn't think the NBA knew who we were. Yeah. You know, that, I mean, they thought, I, I thought we were in Alaska. <laughs> you, know, you know, they didn't give us a lot of love. But then, you know, things have changed. But I think the thing I learned from cancer was that to balance my life a little better. Hmm. To care about my 
the people who really care about me, I wasn't given enough love to. And since then, I think I've been a, a much better father, a much better person, a more balanced person. I learned to delegate more. Uh, I learned to assign, give, give uh, difficult assignments to my assistant coaches and not put the burden on my back hmm. every day of every, every game. Well, congratulations on beating it. I mean, it's two of my two of my mentors that I care about deeply, both cancer survivors as well. And it's it's not, it wasn't fun seeing them go through it, and they beat it. And congratulations, it's it takes Thank strength. You. Um, it makes sorry. you stronger in the end. Too. Yeah, and yeah. you know, go ahead, Rick. I'm sorry. Well, and, well, I know we've kept you for a long time in doing it. I just I think some of the people might know. Just so you know, George came when you came within one game of actually having two thousand uh, games that you coached in the NBA. You were the he was the seventh. NBA coach to actually win a thousand games as a coach, which is quite an accomplishment. Incredible. Uh, but that last year in Denver, you know, even though you talked about saying your best team was before then, you got coach of the year in 2013. Uh, you know, not that that's, you know, you know how <laughs> subjective that can be, but uh, how did you feel after all of the years that you've been around and all of the things that you've done? Uh, what was it like for you to be acknowledged as the coach of the year in the NBA? Um, I'll always remember that day. I mean, the most, the most treasured trophy I had, I don't, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Red Auerbach trophy. It's a pretty no. cool trophy. Okay. Uh, that's the one I, I, you know, that's the one I display today. It's the only one that have all the, all the championships or all the good seasons I've had. The one I, I really, because that was a team that didn't have any all-stars, had a lot of good players. Mm -hmm but not one all-star and we won 57 and we played with, for a better phrase, we played with balls. We weren't afraid of anybody. And they had guys like Ty Lawson and, and Iguodala and Gallo and uh, Wilson Chandler. And we had a three headed center with McGee, Costas Kufus and Timo, Timo, what's Timo's last name? I can't remember, but I, yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so we had three centers. That, it didn't matter to me who played. It was one, I was going to play the one who played the best. Um, and we lost to Golden State. Mm -hmm. I didn't forget. We lost to Golden State in the first round, and that was Steph's coming out party. It was. That's where he grew up, right in front of me. And he had, he had some big-time games. But we played him a good series. But Gallo got hurt. I still think if Gallo didn't get hurt, we would have. I thought we might have won that series. You're right. But Gallo tore his knee up in the first first week in April. Ten to three, missed the first two games with a sprained ankle, and Ty Lawson had a little bit of a sprained ankle too. So, and you know, eight years in one place, I think the management just got kind of tired. They, they got tired of losing in the first round. They had a built-in excuse. They blew me up. They didn't make the playoffs for seven years. My resentment's over. I'm cheering for them now. <laughs> I want them to win. Well, statute I, of limitations, seven years. It's over, right? That's <laughs> well, most most marriages don't last that long. So I yeah. think that's a good run. <laughs> and and, and uh, lastly, George, before going, you had to you had to, the I don't know you'll have to answer or not whether it was a great pleasure or not. But you were an all-star coach in the NBA four different occasions. I mean, and amazingly. 
16 years in between your first one and your last one. So what was that experience like? I'm glad you didn't tell me tell them the record that I had. I never won an all-star game. I'm 0-4. Uh, it's an honor to be with those guys. I mean, the weekend is a celebration more of, I don't know, Rick, you, you made the all-star team many nights, but it was more of a, it was that, it was like four days of instead of being enemies, enemies with one another, you became friends. And, you know, uh, there's not much coaching to it. All you're doing is substituting guys, getting everybody try to be somewhat happy. Hopefully it's a fourth quarter game and then you get you can see what happens at the end. And that I had a couple games that were really good. We had a game in the in the Texas Stadium, hundred thousand hundred thousand fans. And it came down to the last shot. I that was probably the one game I remember hmm. pretty seriously. Um, but you know, I had some problems in all star games. I had a game with that we were playing. Uh, we were playing against Shaq, and he was in Orlando at the time. And I had nothing to do with this. I swear on my children's <laughs> life. Okay. I never. I never told my team to double team Shaq, but they decided to double team Shaq. So you know, Shaq got pissed off. They won the game, but Shaq got pissed off. <laughs> and a week later, we're playing Orlando in Orlando. And the, and the score at the end of the first quarter is like 42 to 20. And Gary Payton walks over to me and goes, Coach, I don't think our shit's working tonight. <laughs> and then the other one is Kobe Bryant thought I stiffed him oh. in the all, his first All-Star game in New York. And it was a game. Uh, I don't know if you remember the game, but I saw. I, I know it's on video. Kobe comes down the left side, right in front of our bench. Carl Malone has great post-up position, great post-up position, and he waves him out. And Kobe Bryant goes, shakes and bakes, and takes a bad shot. Carl Malone runs by the bench, says, "Get me the fuck out of here." So Michael goes on. I think this is Michael's last All-Star game. I'm not sure of that, but this is, I think the last one was when he was really good. Yeah. And he, and they give the MVP to Michael. And afterwards, all Kobe's people were pissed at me because I didn't put Kobe <laughs> back in the game. So what are you gonna I do? can't win. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, George, I have to ask you this before we let you go because you were involved with the Warriors for two important pieces. One, you were their head coach. And then two, in my opinion, the Warriors dynasty started with that series where they played you because, like you said, it was Steph's coming out party. And they pushed that solid Spurs team to six games in the next round as well. But uh, they should have beaten them. And they should have beaten you. You're right. They were just, I think, they inexperienced. They had game two. They had game two up 20 in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I think everyone realized how special that team was at that, at that point, especially. I mean, never mind the fact beating your team. But, you, but you've been quoted on numerous occasions as saying that there was something fishy going on with Iguodala when he was playing for you. And, and, and Andre left the Nuggets for the Warriors, as everyone knows. Could you elaborate on that? Like, why did you think something fishy was going on there? I don't know. There's, there's video clips of him talking to, uh, to Mark Jackson in the games and it just didn't feel good. 
and 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 Andre's a hell of a player, but he's a little different, a little strange. He doesn't have great connection <laughs> with his teammates, and so it, it, it shook us a little bit. Uh, but Iguodala, he played well in the series. He did. He did play very well. I never criticized him on how he played, but I do have some. Uh, conspiracy thoughts on the whole situation. Interesting. And I have a lot of conspiracy thoughts. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a liberal Democrat, but my basketball conspiracy stuff makes me look like Donald Trump. <laughs> we don't go into politics on this show. So no, <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk politics. Sports and politics do not mix, and I wish the hell they would keep it that way forever. So, George, listen, all the best. I really appreciate you taking the time. Hopefully, I'll see you again sometime at Big Bill's uh, restaurant, and we'll have some, some, yeah. some good uh, meatball sandwiches or pizza or whatever. But uh, I just I wish you continued good health. I, and I especially wish you good luck in, in trying on your endeavor to try to see if you can get basketball back up in Seattle. I, I lived in Mercer Island for a while. It's a great place. I used to broadcast for the Spurs for a number of years. You, I don't know if you remember or, or knew Wayne Cody, who was up there. I used to do stuff with Wayne Cody and then with sure. Kevin Calabro, Kevin Calabro as well. So – I had yes. a great time, great time up there, and got to know the Nordstrom family. Used to play tennis with them, and and it was uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, so good luck with that as well, and uh, all the best to you and your family. Yeah, enjoy. Hey, Rick, enjoy. I, got, I got I got a question. I got one thing. I, I, I this morning I talk, I was talking with Dell Harris, and Dell I think is one of the greatest encyclopedias of basketball, and we were talking about Luca Doncic, 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 yeah, Dallas, Luka, yeah. Amazing. And I asked Dell, because Dell lives in Dallas. I said, Dell, who does Donkins remind you of? Guess who he said? Obviously, he said me, and I could tell you <laughs> what. Here's the deal, George. If I were playing today, I would want to be a point guard. Yeah. I'd want I, the ball. I, I'd, I would want the ball in my hands to have the ability to control the game. I, 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 I seriously, I really and truly, I, I've talked to my wife and stuff about it. If I were going to be playing today and, and everybody talked to, Hey, I was a great ball handler. They, well, I'd have to be way better ball handler today with the way the things that they do it, but that's just getting in the gym and working on it. But man, I would want to be a point guard. And that's what I see that. And, and I love the way he sees the floor. I like the way that he plays. He's very efficient, uh, can shoot the hell out of it. Yeah. And he rebounds for, I, 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 He's been very impressive to me. I did not expect him to become the player that he's become so quickly. I think he's the biggest surprise in the last 10 years. Yeah, no quite. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, when Steph Curry came in, I mean, I, I, I'm impressed with what Steph did to make himself into what he did. It's kind of like what, what Steve Nash did. But this kid, to do it as quickly as he's done it, mm -hmm. very impressive, very impressive. Fun to watch. And, and uh, you know, and, you know, like, what I like about him, in, in the comparison to you, and we also brought up Magic, and he also brought up Oscar, hmm. that, you know, Dantix never gets out of control. Yeah, very efficient. He's always in control, and he looks like he's slow, but he isn't slow. Uh, so. Rick and I talk about that, all these athletes who do not have the athlete body. I think uh, Dantix is one of those, right? Only it's getting there, but the baby Huey effect is still a little bit. Yeah, I call it the baby Yui effect. The guys that you can see aren't spending a lot of time in the gym because nowadays guys look like Greek gods, you know, with the chiseled muscles and all the other stuff. He doesn't necessarily <laughs> have that, but he can sure as hell play. And it's the same thing as, as you know, maybe it's because of the itch at the end of the name. Jokic is the same way, you know? Yeah. 
you got Doncic and Jokic and everything. These guys haven't spent a lot of time in the in the weight room, but you know, obviously, they didn't need to do it to become the players they are today. And George, talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, we talked about the truth and why the truth is not spoken enough. And Rick and I always play the soundbite, uh, and this which might answer why. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And that's why people just can't handle the truth. I there we go, why. George. Amen, I, baby. All right. Hey, stay and, well. And, and before we go, George, uh, you do have a, we, I do want to promote your podcast, uh, yeah. Truth and Basketball. How can it, it, Just Google it. That's the easiest way for people to find yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's on Apple. It's wherever you want to go. Gotcha. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking a little break. We're not doing anything until maybe September. And uh, we're probably going to do a Truth and Basketball in Seattle. I think we're going to call it Simply Seattle. Mm. Because of my, the following in Seattle is heavy. You know, we, we, we've had, we did some episodes, so it's, it's been fun. I'm sure Ricky, you, you've been doing about the same amount of time I've done. It allows me to loosen up a little bit and I can cuss on this, this forum and yes, and, and radio doesn't pay anymore. So hell, what the hell's going on? <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Hey, that's the way it works. Hey, hey one last thing, one last thing. I'll say goodbye to you, but I look at your book, 101 out of bounds place. I mean, I, one thing I learned when I was doing the coaching, George, this, you want to get your players to do stuff. You're hoping that they can remember three plays. Hey, I'm, I'm saying, man, I'm into simplicity now. Simple baby. Hey George, great to see you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Very much appreciated. Okay, guys. God bless Thank you. you. All right. See you later. Thank you, George. Right. Thank you, George. Bye -bye. Take care, man. Thank Bye -bye. you. All right, Cyrus. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, we got a, you know, a, a good guy who's gone through a hell of a lot. You know, even his yes. he had a son. I didn't bring it up, but you know, because he wants to bring up stuff like that. But his son went through the cancer as well, and That's so horrible. he's had uh, some serious situations going on. But that was that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And I have to tell you though, my wife was hearing the podcast when you were doing your, uh, yes. your surfing show with Canyon and my yes. wife. I, yeah, with Canyon, yeah, and she was like, "Oh my God, he used the f word." Uh, <laughs> don't let her hear this podcast, then. Yeah, There's like thirty of them. Yeah, I know. This. And you can follow George on Twitter yeah, at GeorgeCall22. You can follow Rick Barry on Twitter at Rick24Barry on all social media platforms at Rick24Barry. You can follow me at DogSurfRocha. Rick, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. Stay well, and uh, let's hope that we get back to some sense of normalcy. I say it all the time, as quickly as possible, and, uh, and and get back to having fans being able to go out and watch the athletes that they love to perform so well. And thanks to George Carl for joining us. And until the next time, God bless everyone. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.